Aid Riders Week. And just before we start today's session, I'd like to acknowledge the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains and pay respects to Elders past and present and future. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land. And we acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. I'd like to thank you for attending the Adelaide Writers' Week. And I just need to reinforce some key conditions of our COVID management plan that's been approved by SA Health. So, of course, we'd just like you to maintain some social distancing wherever possible. We'd also strongly encourage the wearing of masks and ask you to follow directions given by COVID marshals, venue staff and volunteers. Thank you very much for your consideration. We also ask that you support our authors by purchasing books at the book tent um, and the books from these session can be signed much like is happening over here. Um, after the session, Matt will be doing a book signing there. And I would like to give you a little bit of a background to Matt O'Kine, who I'm sure you're already quite familiar with, but he's an author, comedian, actor and presenter. His award-winning semi-autobiographical stand-up show was adapted into a TV series, The Other Guy, which he co-wrote and starred in. A second season of The Other Guy is currently under commission. Yay! Um, but being black and chicken and chips, his debut novel, uh, that was released in 2019 is the novel he'll be talking about today. Uh, Matt's actually done a teen edition of that book and um, if you haven't had a chance to read it, please, I ask you to take a look. It is hysterically funny and um, will really uh, touch you all, I'm sure. So, um, Being Black and Chicken and Chips burst onto the scene with a hilarious and often heartbreaking story about trying to grow up, about trying to grow up when everything is falling apart. For all its humour, Matt gives voice to lived experiences of third culture kids and awkward teenagers everywhere. In this session, he reveals the layers behind the laughs. Welcome to the stage, Matt. Thank you. All right, thank you very much. Uh, Adelaide, this is very exciting. First time at Adelaide Writers Week. Uh, it is very good to be here. Was anyone affected? by the earthquake. <laughs> you felt it? I was in, yeah, I didn't feel anything. I was, in a, I was in a hotel, but I also, last night I stayed up late, so I, I don't know if I would have felt anything. Um, but anyways, so great to be here. I'm hoping everyone is uh, happy and safe. Um, I'm going to do something which seems a little bit, well, feels a little bit egotistical, but I, uh, it's going to be important for figuring out how I should angle what I'm going to say today. So, out of interest, who has, uh, who, who, who here knows who I am? Okay, cool. I just wasn't sure. You sometimes you just roll, walking around. You're like, oh, this is shade. Um, so that's fine. Okay. So, in terms of uh, knowing who I am, what do you? Uh, who here is most familiar with my work on Triple J? Okay. Who here has most familiar with uh, my TV show, The Other Guy? And who here has actually read my book? That's, I gotta tell you, that's a lot more than I thought. Thank you very much. I think you all shared the one copy, uh, judging by the sales. <laughs> that's all right, hoping to bring in two today. All right, no. Nah, it's actually done pretty well. It's, it's fine, it's fine. Um, I am rich. So, I am, it's, it's crazy. I uh, never thought I would be, but I am. So, uh, but books, nah, don't bring in money. So, 
Uh, <laughs> I'm not heaps rich, you know what I mean? I'm just, I'm just, I'm just rich enough to not care what colour the plates are at Sushi Train. Like, that's how... You know what I mean? Like, I just, I just, I just see it come round, I just grab it. I'm like, and they're like, bro, that's a pink plate. I'm like, oh, is it? All I saw was plate. So, uh, <laughs> things are going okay. But look, I'm going to start this, I'm going to start this session today um, where I guess it all started for me, where this book started for me, and that's back in 1998, all right? So, um, the, you know, the older people in the crowd will know, remember it very well. We're talking about, um, you know, Bill Clinton was in trouble for stuff. Um, Britney Spears released her first song, uh, Hit Me Baby One More Time. Uh, the Super League had just had just happened uh, with the NRL, had fractured off, and they had just come back after a disastrous uh, season of one, you know, a broken competition. Um, perms were kind of on the way out, but they were still kind of there. The low genes were about to happen, like really dangerously low genes that are apparently coming back now. Um, I wore like button-up Nautica shirts and polo. Polo Ralph Lauren was pretty cool. So that was all. This is 1998. And I was a pretty good little kid, a 12-year-old boy um, at Brisbane, just starting Brisbane State High School, okay? So... Uh, but in terms of where I grew up, you know, I grew up in a place called Indrapilly, and it's western suburbs of Brisbane. My dad was from Ghana, West Africa, and, you know, at 12 years old, I'd never been to Ghana. There were no other black kids at, at my, well, barely any other black kids at my primary school. You could count them on, you know, your hand. And, um, and yeah, I didn't really know much about who my dad was in terms of the culture that he encompassed and, uh, and all of the sort of, the history that he had, you know, just within his bones. And so, I mean, he was around, like, uh, my parents had just split up. I had split up a few years earlier, sorry. And so I mainly lived with my mum, but I would go to my dad's every afternoon after school. But my mum was the top dog in the family for me, you know. She was the, she was the, 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 the matriarch that I, that I clung on to desperately, that I loved so very, very dearly, um, who I listened to, whatever she said went. Um, and I, you know, I had just been the ducks of my primary school, uh, we'd just had an awards night, actually. I'd won four awards. I'd won the sports awards because um, I was good at sport. I was, you know, repping comps in athletics and um, soccer. Although, I'll tell you what, I should have been, I promise, I'm telling you now, I was a great soccer player, but I could not kick the ball. Now... I know that sounds ridiculous, like I was a goalie and I could like pull off the most incredible saves. I knew exactly how to like work the plays and timings to slide out to catch it. I was excellent. Could not kick the ball. And so I had to get a defender to kick the ball out for me every time. It's so embarrassing. And I'm sure that, that's the reason why I'm doing what I do now and I'm not playing for Manchester United. <laughs> Turns out kicking is a very important part of soccer, okay? But it was the only thing I wasn't good at. Um, but yeah, like I said, I was also ducks in my primary school. Um, and I was heading into my first year of Brisbane State High, of high school with a lot of momentum. Things are happening, you know? And I, and I, was, really, I was really showing my sort of abilities in the academic world. I was starting to make all the A teams for soccer and athletics and all that sort of stuff. And then one day, my mum got a headache. And... She always kind of had headaches growing up. You know, mums have headaches. It's like just the rule. 
of life. And, uh, and you know, we give them to them as kids. That's, what, that's why. As soon as you have kids, headaches. And, um, and she got a headache. And I didn't really think anything of it. But she sort of stopped going to work. You know, she didn't go to work for a few days. And then, like, after a while, I was sort of just going about my days, just going to school, and I'd come home, and she wouldn't, she hadn't left her room all day. And the fan would just be on in her room, and she'd be really kind of daze hazy. And I would cook myself dinner out of, like, you know, soup in a can or reheat something, two-minute noodles or whatever, and then I'd just go to bed and I'd wake up. This happened for about two weeks until... One day I got home, my dad would drop me off after school. I'd go to my dad's house, I'd play with him, like I'd be at my dad's house and my next door neighbours and then he'd drop me at my mum's place. That was the routine every single day. And this one day after my mum had been, had a headache for two weeks, I, dad dropped me home and I went upstairs and I walked into the mum's apartment and like the shower was on, right? And I, and I remember hearing her kind of calling out for me. So I went in and she had passed out sort of on the shower. She'd collapsed on the shower, on the floor. And the, the water had run cold and she was like shivering and her lips were blue. And she said, you know, can I, can you drop me? Can, is your dad still downstairs? And for whatever reason, I still don't necessarily know why, but he was still downstairs. I think he had been worried about mum because I told him that she'd had a headache for a while and blah, blah, blah. And I think he just wanted me to let him know that she was going to be okay. So he was kind of waiting for me. And so I ran downstairs and I told him that uh, that mum was in the shower and that she was unwell and that she needed to, she wanted to go to hospital. And so we went to hospital, and um, and then I went to school the next day. You know, just like life is normal. I remember a teacher coming up to me saying, "Oh, you know, did you like did you do the homework you'd done?" I said, "Oh no, I my my mum went to hospital last night. She was a bit unwell." And the teacher said, "Oh okay, that's no good. Oh well, I hope she's okay." And then that afternoon, I got into my dad's car when he picked me up and he said that, um, that mum had cancer, breast cancer that had spread to her brain um, and that there was going to be a lot of, in, like, it was going to be very difficult for her to survive it. And it's funny when you, like, when you get, when things happen to you, you don't, process them the way that you think you will ever it's so funny and 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 part of part of the joys I have of writing a book is trying to sort of demonstrate that trying to demonstrate moments and the ways that people react to things that they're not what you expect all the time um I remember in my show the other guy it's about um a guy very similar to me who finds out that his partner of 10 years has been cheating on him with his best friend, right? And they've all been having an affair in the same house. They've all lived together in this share house and it's all been going on. And for for over how many years, could be five years that it's been happening and he he hasn't known. And so many people when they watch the show would would go like, why didn't you, why 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 didn't you get angry at her? Why didn't you get angry? Why didn't you yell at her or scream? I just wanted you to get angry. I just wanted you to do this. But like, that happens in the movies. But sometimes it doesn't happen like that. I remember when she told me what had been going on. It, it leaked out. Like it leaked 
over days and weeks, this information finally coming out. And when it finally all sort of unraveled, we were all tired and I was hungry. And I remember saying, I'm, I'm really hungry. Can we go get a burger? And she was like, yeah, I'm hungry too. And so then we just went and got a burger and we just talked about how to, un, like how to separate things properly, you know, because it was really complicated. There was never a, oh, I can't believe you did it. Or I walked in on them cheating and then I, you know, chased him out of the window and he had to climb down with the, you know, the bed sheets. We got, got burgers, you know. And I remember when my dad told me that my mum had cancer and it was spread to her brain, I remember thinking, oh, she's going to die, right? And that was sad. I got really sad thinking about that. But there are so many moments in that process. And, 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 that, and that moment right there, that moment for, is, is what we call the inciting incident of any story. For me, and that's the inciting incident of my story, and probably my life is that event. Um, you see someone who's you see their normal world, and then something happens which very much throws them into a completely different world, and it changes their life forever. And for me, that world was suddenly living without a mum and living with um, this Ghanaian dentist slash nightclub runner who I didn't really know that well. I mean, I knew him; he was my dad, but I didn't know him. And I'd never lived like fully with him, you know. And I was heading into a whole new world when it came to puberty and what my body was doing and the things that I thought were important and the things that I thought were important about uh, my body and being a man. And, and it was, and it just thrust me into a whole new, uh, you know, world that I had to comprehend. And that's what happens to this character in this book. 12 years old, finds his mum on the floor of a shower and is uh, suddenly thrust into a world with his dad that he has to sort of learn about. And there are so many key moments to the my story when it happened to me that will never leave me, that will always resonate as being some of the most difficult things to comprehend and process. And I've gotten better at talking about them ever since I did this show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. So it was 2012... And I was doing my first one-hour show, and it was called Being Black and Chicken and Shit. It was called Shit. Sorry, I'm just saying that now. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but that's what the show was called, okay? Um, but we changed it to Chips because Kmart and Big W don't like those words. All right, so anyways. <laughs> um, and so, uh, no offense to Kmart and Big W. Love you guys. Thank you very much for supporting the book. Now... <laughs> Um, yeah, so you don't get all the sushi you want by pissing off the supporters. Um, so, <laughs> so, um, I remember, yeah, so I did the show and I did a very light version of the show and I, and I, and for a whole month I was doing this show and Ronnie Cheng was doing another show on the other side of the festival and he was killing me every night. So many people were seeing his show. He was getting rave reviews and I was dying here and it was my first time at the Melbourne Comedy Festival and I really wanted to win this award the best newcomer award I wanted to win it but everyone was talking about Ronnie 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 right and I remember in the last week of me doing this show I got this two-star review from the age and this guy said and I'll never forget it you know I'll never forget it just seeing this two-star review and this guy just cutting my show to bits 
But really what he said was right. Because what he said was, if you're going to talk about something that's, you know, obviously very meaningful to you, then talk about it properly. You know, don't skate around the edges. Go go, go in, embrace the vulnerability about it because it, it, this is a huge event. And to just sort of lightly dance around it with jokes is not doing it justice. And so that night I changed the show there and then to talk about really some of the key moments that will always stick with me and the things that hurt the most about it. Uh, and I filled the rest of it with jokes and it was a very funny but also a very sad show. And the right people happened to be in the show that week. Um, and I ended up catching up to Ronnie in the final lap of the race. Uh, and we crossed the line exactly tied. We both won this award, Best Newcomer Award. I couldn't believe it, right? Um, and, you know, now he's on American television and I'm eating sushi. So, anyway, the point is, the point is, uh, we were equals for a while. But, um, you know, three of the things, three moments stick with me when I think about the time that my mum was in hospital going through that. One of the moments was when we first arrived in hospital and mum said, and dad and mum and my sister were there, and we said, when did you find out you had a lump? And she said, during the summer holidays, when we were on holiday in Tasmania. See, me and her had gone on this holiday to Tasmania, this beautiful holiday, just me and her. We'd gone around, and I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that holiday. I get sad just thinking about it, especially knowing that she had found a lump. And... I felt so sad about that moment and I always think about that moment because it's like she knew something was going on but then didn't do anything about it for a number of different reasons, I'm sure, but also because we were having fun and she didn't want to ruin that. And I think for such a long time, I equated to what my mum did in that moment by neglecting to do something about it as the purest desertion that she could have done to, to me. Um, I felt like that she, she genuinely deserted me um, and that what she did was not unsimilar to ending her own life, basically. Um, by not taking action when there was a possibility that something was wrong. I lived with that for a very long time and that hurt for a very long time. The second moment is when we had moved her to a different room and dad and her were talking about um, medic uh, medications, uh, not medications, uh, cures, whatever, treatments, that's right, thank you. And um, I'm a writer. And, <laughs> and treatment. And they said, are you going to... Dad said, are they going to give you a double mastectomy, right? Um, and mum said, that's where they cut off both your breasts. And mum said, no, I don't, I'm not going to let them do that. And I remember being 12 years old and thinking, yeah, I, I understand why you're not going to let them do that. You're not going to let them do that because... If you do that, then you won't be a woman, right? That's what went through my head. And I have a tremendous amount of guilt about that thought all the time. But I still also 
could understand. And I've talked to other people who have gone through that same process and had those same thoughts. Women who, who have been suffering from cancer and had to have that same, you know, decision. And that, that really, and it, it hurts. In that, in that instance, I felt like it was a, a desertion f- f- of me to her, you know, to think that I would look at her or think of her in any other way. And the third one is when um, she was really unwell and she couldn't see me. She was really, like, really sort of gone, blurry vision, mumbling a lot, didn't really know who I was. And, um, and she, I, asked her, I asked her if she needed any help with something and she said, she said, no, I don't want, she said, stop, stop trying to help me, go away, go away. And I thought for her to say that to me was really, really rough. And I remember thinking, you know, I just want this to be over. And I, and I would like you to die right now. And that is, again, another just terrible thing that sits with me. But it's something that everyone feels when in those moments. And every single person who's ever had to look after someone in a situation like this knows that, that guilt of just not being able to go through with this anymore. And so... Those are all of the things I really wanted to make sure were in this book. There's so much silly stuff and so much fun stuff. But when the important moments happen, I really wanted to make sure that they happened well, you know, and they happened realistically and truthfully and honestly and authentically. Because for a 12-year-old boy going through that, you, you always just assume, yes, you want your parent to get better, but you also just still want to be a 12-year-old kid and you still just want to, you, you don't want to, you don't want people to feel sorry for you. You don't want to stand out and feel different. You know, you've already got brown skin. You don't want to stand out any more than you do. You just desperately want to be like everyone else. And so my character in the book hides what's going on very much and he doesn't want anyone to know and he just tries to go about his day like I did, you know, and try to put up a brave face. And... I think that it is sort of one of the detriments to the way that boys and men were brought up, certainly in the past, and we're getting better at it, to equate that strength and toughness with um, not crying and not showing emotion. Because that's what I tried to do throughout the whole period. I didn't want to cry. I didn't want to let anyone know. I'd already been hurt by my mum quite a lot for leaving, so I didn't want anyone to, to know that I was upset that they could hurt me anymore. So I didn't cry for many years. I remember being at her funeral and a friend of hers saw me and I was like laughing and making jokes because I wanted everyone to know that I was okay. And afterwards, that friend wrote me a letter and said, you know, I, I felt really sad when I saw you at the funeral because I wanted you to, I just wished you knew that it was okay to cry. Like it's, it's all right to be upset. I remember getting so angry at that letter. I remember getting so angry with that lady. I was like, Who, you don't know me. You don't know how I deal with things. How dare you? But 20 years later, I look back on it and think I needed to cry so bad in that moment. And it just got blocked up in me. It's like, um, it's like when, you, uh, when you have a, like a frozen Coke, but you don't take a sip for too long and the, and the, and the frozen Coke like freezes in the straw. So when you sip, it, nothing comes through. And then you sit really hard and a little sort of pebble of ice goes into the back of your throat and chokes you. 
<laughs> That's what happens if you choke up all the tears. Eventually, that, you know, that, that, they'll choke you in a way that is not, it's not good. My mum died three, three weeks after we took her to hospital that night. Um, and she never left the hospital. And from that day on, I lived with my dad. And, uh, and we went through just a wild time together of, of volatile emotions and trying to come to grips with each other and understand each other. Me as a tough young kid wanting to get through and go to parties and drink and, and hook up with girls and, and, and try to prove that I, you know, I'm not going to get hurt by anything or anyone. And, and him desperately trying to tame this kid who was having an outburst. But it's all in here. And it's a really, really great read. It's called Being Black and Chicken and Chips. Very funny stuff. Um, nah, heaps of funny stuff. My, the, the, you know, he has to get peed on by his mum because he's been stung by jellyfish. Uh, he twists his testicle. Uh, it's all, all very silly stuff. Um, and it's all, there's so many things in this book that are just, you know, it's written from a 12-year-old's perspective. And this is the teen version. The teen version is, is toned down slightly in terms of language and some of the content, but they're, 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 they're similar in the essence of the, of the book. And I just wanted to make sure that it, it, it was a book that younger kids could feel like they're reading, they're reading up, you know. Uh, when I was a young kid, nothing annoyed me more than reading a book that was meant for me, that was, that was just so... Like the, that read like I was an eight-year-old, you know, when I was when I was twelve and thirteen, and felt like I was about to be an adult. So I wanted to try and make sure that it, that it was a that it was a book that kids feel like they're reading up to. Um, but it, it, you know, it, there's no holding back on the body exploration as well that you do as a young boy, um, and the certain things that you wish were bigger. Anyways. I'm trying to figure out the ways to say it. There's, there's kids here. Anyways, so, so anyways, that's something that I, you know, was, was dealing with as well. And so that I very much instilled that with the, with the book. So it's a, you know, it's just about a, it's a coming of age story about a young guy who's trying to deal with all of those things. Uh, and also the cultural rejection of who he is um, as an African, a half African Australian in 1990s Queensland. Um, where, you know, when I was growing up, there was, there was like not many black people around at all. There were so few black people. Like you, if you saw one in the street, you would like nod your head to each other. Like that, it's like, like you're walking along, you see another brown guy, you're like, oh, hey man, you're black too. Keep it up. You know, like that's... <laughs> And then I went to Ghana for the first time. I was like, fuck, rat. Whoa. Whoa. Um, it was actually, I did go to Ghana for the first time two years after this book, what I, after this book is set. So I was 15. But it was a wild time there. I mean, this is completely unrelated, but just thinking about the earthquake this morning, I was like, when you're in those events, it's like, it's, it's I mean, the, this, the earthquake wasn't really like a big sort of event, but I remember being in Ghana and there was a... Um, a stampede in the um we went to a soccer match and people started throwing the the some stuff onto the field and so the people at the stadium decided to um respond to that by standing on top of the stadium with tear gas and firing tear gas into the stadium and me and dad were in the crowd 
and we freaked out. Like everyone, it turned into this huge stadium crush. Uh, people were trying to climb over the sort of barbed wired sort of spiked fences. People were getting like impaled on fences. People were stomping on each other to get out. I saw like, I remember trying to get up the steps and you can't breathe. If you've ever had tear gas or if you want to know what it's like, it's like, imagine you're breathing in electricity. That's what it feels like. You're, it's like you've got an electric shock in your lungs every time you take a breath in. So you can't breathe. There's people crushing you and there's people literally surfing on top of crowds like down the steps just body surfing down crowd surfing down on people's heads and necks and they and and getting trampled on and six people died and hundreds were injured that day um and I thought that was pretty bad and my the whole time my dad had been really panicked the whole like the whole time he was stressed out he's like we got to get out of here you don't know what's going to happen in places like this you don't know and I was kind of like it'll be okay it'll be okay it's kind of like exciting but then the exact same thing happened in the exact same stadium about three months after my dad and I had been there and the whole stadium collapsed and hundreds died and thousands were injured. And it's the worst stadium disaster um, in African history. Um, that is so unrelated to my book. I just, I just, I don't know. It's a story. I thought I'd, thought I'd just uh, tell a little story. Um, but look, I, uh, I, I'm going to open it up to some questions now because I've got about 15 minutes left. Um, feel free to ask me any questions if you'd like to know anything about it. Um, I'll start by by sort of explaining the, the process, just while you think of some questions. I'm going to uh, start by, by talking about the process. And this is something, this is just a sort of, this is for anyone who wants to be a creative, any young people who want to be creatives um, in the room or anyone who wants to be a creative. You just got to kind of do it. Um, yeah, it's it's just so easy to say you want to do it and then make up excuses, but you just have to do it. And um, I always liken it to a sandwich and like, because people get all like caught up on the idea that it's like a book or something like that is, is something more than, more than just a sandwich. But realistically, all content that we make is just, it's to be consumed. It's just like food. We consume content every single day the same way we do with food. And we, and we often do it at the same time. Eat dinner, watching TV, on the bus, listening to a podcast, uh, or, you know, or at, the, at lunch, eating, listening to a podcast, at, in the morning, reading a newspaper or reading a book or whatever. Like we're just constantly consuming. So when you overthink the produce you're trying to make, it can sometimes mean that people can't eat. And an okay sandwich is a thousand times tastier than a sandwich that doesn't exist, <laughs> right? So when you're sitting there going, oh, I don't know if I can, oh, yeah, but all I've got is this the bread and the bread might, is a tiny bit stale and oh, I wish I had the nice coopy mayonnaise instead of praise and, oh, I don't know, is this, is this chicken okay? And, and meanwhile, someone's like, yo, I'm hungry. Just make a sandwich so I can eat it. <laughs> um, and so... You know, I do a lot of different things. I make I make TV and I make radio and I make books and I present and stuff like that. Um, and I do it because I just like cooking, you know. I just like making things. And I like having people over to my house to, to eat the things that I make and I hope that they enjoy them all the time. And so this, the book is another facet. And every single meal I make is just, it shows a little bit more about me and who I am and, and the ways that I believe I can connect with other people and the connections that we can all have as humans and the experiences that we'll all go through at some stage of our life. So I sincerely hope that you enjoy this sandwich um, because it's, you know, it's, it's made with a lot of love and I think the ingredients are pretty good. 
Um, so, so yeah. Does anyone have any so any? Que no, oh, we finished. I'm just going to. Um, oh, you're no, 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 no. Okay. I'm just going to repeat the questions. So, so because we're recording this, so I'd love it if we could. Repeat oh God, the are questions. we? Okay, I didn't know that. <laughs> I really did not know that. Okay. Where are we showing this? Podcast. Oh, okay, 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 that's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> did I say anything? <laughs> All fine. All fine. <laughs> Um, you can vet it. Don't worry. That's no, all right. It's all right. <laughs> but yeah, I can, I'm just going to because of COVID. Obviously, we can't hand the microphones around, but we'd really welcome your questions, and I just want to be able to repeat the questions so that everyone can hear them, if that works. So, I was intrigued by your use of Yeah, so the use of metaphors throughout what I was just saying then, and um, and I mean they're they're all through my book as well. Yeah, I I work in metaphors a lot because it always helps me understand things better. Um, it always simplifies things for me, and so I, as soon as I start understanding how systems work, then I'm able to exploit them a lot better, um, or I can describe them a lot better. So, I mean, the sandwich thing one for me was a big eye-opener. That just made me realise that I'm overthinking a lot of things. Um, another one was understanding that as an artist, I am no more important than a mattress. And ultimately, people will... And, and when, I, when, I, when I say that... What I mean is I need to, as an artist, and this is sort of going to go into a little bit of technique and a bit of um, sort of arts businessy sort of chat, but basically, you know, it's the same with football players or anything. You've got to figure out what your worth is, what your value is, and where you pitch yourself in the market. Are you going to be a high brand product that only releases a few things every now and then? And if so, what the, what's the price point of that product going to be? And are people going to be happy with that product? And, 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 be, and feel that it's, it's worth the money that I've paid. If you pay like $1,000 for a mattress or you pay $5,000 for a mattress, a handmade mattress and there's only a few of them, you expect it to be a really amazing mattress. Or you can buy a really cheap mattress that is mass produced, which is still a very good mattress and you'll actually get good value for money. Um, so you, it really depends. As an artist, you can actually pitch yourself anywhere in that scale or it's the same with a restaurant. So people who consume your product have put a lot of time and effort into going to that event. So when someone goes to see a comedy show of mine, they're not just going to see Matt O'Kine. They're going to spend $100 on a babysitter. They're going to spend $30 for parking. They're going to probably spend $150 on dinner. They're going to spend a few $50 on drinks and $50 on a ticket to see my show. So all up, that's about a $400 night. And they're really banking on that being a good night. So you've got to kind of make it worthwhile, especially if you're, if you're spending $50 on it. So the stories that you tell in that, in that night, you know, and the jokes that you tell, they've got to be well-crafted. They've got to be the best jokes you've got. You've got to have tried and tested them around the world to make sure that when that person comes out for that night, they get their $400 worth. But when you're on the radio, you can say any old shit. I mean, no one... <laughs> I mean, people don't care because they're just turning it on to have something to listen to as they drive to work. They're literally, you're just as, that, that piece of content is just like their daily bowl of cereal. It's not that important. So 
yeah, so using metaphors for me, it always simplifies things for me and makes it so much easier. And so um, there's a trap you can fall into when you write using too many metaphors. I hope I didn't go down that path. But if it helps, then, you know, that's that's what I would do. Um, are you, yeah, that's what I do. Thank you for asking that. Any other questions? It can be about anything, by the way, not just about the book. Yeah. Uh, so the question was, do I have any plans for another book? Sorry, Claire, I'm stealing your job, aren't I? Um, yes, I do, but not right now. Uh, because it, again, it takes, I want, I want the next book to be good as well, you know, and I've got ideas about what I would do it, do it around, but, um, but I just want to make sure that it's, that it's, that it's a good product. Um, and also, you know, a lot of people ask me how long it took to write to write my book you know they go how long does it take to write to write a book and I'll always say that it takes one of the things I learned while writing this book and actually while writing a tv show and while writing anything and I think that it can help this this can help if you're looking at essays and stuff like that things at school as well is writing is not typing and I think one of the greatest traps that people creatives or anyone who has to write anything falls into is that they, they think they're the same thing. And so they go, God, I've got to write this essay. All right, here we go. And they sit down in front of a blank computer and they go, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have anything in my head. And then they freak out and they go, I, I sat there in front of the computer all afternoon and nothing came out and I didn't write anything. And it was terrifying. I'm useless. And I learned pretty early on that if I need to write something, I'm probably going to get a better opportunity. I'll, it'll come, I'll write it better in my head if I go and do something that I like, if I go to the beach, if I go out with friends and I look around and I take things in and I can write it all in my head so that when I sit down to type, I actually have something to type, that it's all there. It just has to come out of my head. And so that was one of the biggest learning curves. So this book took me like, you know, I mean, arguably it took me since I was 12 to write because it's all those experiences formulated into, you know, for informing the character, etc. But really, since I got approached to write a book and the time it came out, it took about two and a half years to write, but it took about six months to type. So, yeah, I, I, it'll be a few years before I, you know, I'm constantly writing. But before I sit down and type, yeah, probably another two years. Any other questions? We've almost got to finish, don't we? Oh, no, that's okay. I've, I've actually got a question Please. for you, Matt. I, I've, I kind of referred in the state, in the description of the session, that you you kind of reflect the experience of third culture kids, like yep. people who between, fall between two cultures. Yep. Do you think there's been a kind of, there's a changing face of Australia? Do you think that representation is is more varied now? Or how do you how do you think it will be for young people growing up in Australia at this time? Oh, I mean, it's, it's so different. It is so different. Even having a show like The Other Guy in Australia, like having a brown lead in the show that created it, I, I mean, I, didn't, I never saw that in my, when I was a kid growing up. Never, ever, 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 ever saw that. Ernie Dingo was the only brown person on TV. And before that, it was Kamal. I'm not even joking. Like, that's, that's literally all it was. Um, and... I mean, the cultural rejection that I went through as a, as a, the denial that I went through as a kid is 
completely unhealthy, you know, and I hope that I hope that young people today don't feel like that at all. But, you know, I also grew up in a part of Brisbane where there just wasn't anyone that looked like me. So I did want to try and fit in with all the other kids. Um, and, you know, being proud about being a coconut, you know, black on the outside, white on the inside, all that sort of stuff. Like I just like it's just like sad when I think about it. But that's what it, that's what it was like. But my my daughter is now, you know, um, she's quarter African now, and she's got a c- curly hair, and um, you can tell that she's she's uh, of a different ethnicity than than the other kids at daycare, etc. From her skin tone and her hair. And my partner showed her the banana ad recently. Do you know that um, that old bananas ad from like the '90s? It was like banana na 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 na. Hey, there we go. For the podcast. And um, and it's all different Australians from all different walks of life, like, you know, eating bananas and playing and kids playing and blah, blah, blah. And my, my partner showed my daughter that video and she said, I just realised that there's no brown people in that ad whatsoever at all. And then she actually got quite upset. She, she got quite teary and she thought, and she said, I feel so sorry for you having to have, just seen ads like that and TV like that all the time and never, ever, ever seeing yourself or anything. And I'm so glad that our daughter has a different opportunity to see people, you know, all over the place um, that look like her and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and so it is changing a lot, you know, and I'm really excited about that. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so this is um, an interesting point. So the question was writing up for 12-year-olds, but how do you write as a you know, 30-something-year-old person as a 12-year-old? Um, this, again, is going to be a technique answer. So um, this is something that we were, we were discussing when we were writing the book. Is this going to be a book that is written from a 35-year-old's perspective about when he was 12, or is it going to be about the 12-year-old living in that moment? And I decided to go with the 12-year-old perspective because there's a lot of, it's a lot more pure and innocent, and naivety, I find the naivety far more interesting um, of watching someone actually grapple with it all happening in real time instead of looking retrospectively on, oh, I, sh- I would wish I'd known this, and I wish I'd known that, and now that I understand this, and blah, blah, blah. Wisdom is, is not a very useful tool in... Um, storytelling that's my opinion and I just made that up just then so I don't know (laughs) I just don't think it is you know uh you don't want your characters to know everything and to be wise it's not going to be very interesting so we went to a 12 year old perspective now it's quite funny because there's certain passages passage passages in the book that whenever people are talking to doing interviews or anything like that they'll say things like oh I really love this moment in the book you know it's just really really great writing and I'm like Ugh, damn because that's actually a layover from when I was writing it from a 35 year old perspective and of course my character is more wise in that passage um and so that's actually a writing fault that I've I've that's a bad thing even though it might be impressive writing it shouldn't be there but I left it there because I'm egotistical and I wanted people know to know that I can write you know, because people sort of think, oh, well, if it's written in a 12-year-old voice, it's not going to be very smart, you know, or that it's not going to be very wise or it's going to be, it's a kid's book. That's what they're going to think. So I kind of left it there to sort of prove that I can write and I shouldn't have. And I would I'd personally dock one star off my uh, five-star review. 
if I were to review my book for that exact thing. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, and we had arguments. We had arguments about what should stay and what should go. Even when it came down to making the teen edition, there's a moment where my character grabs his mum's boob and he goes, you know, his mum's his mum's worried about her weight, and there, you know, she sort of says, oh, "I've just got to lose my, I got to lose a bit more weight." And my and she's been tickling him, like teasing him for liking girl at school, and he's like all wriggling, he's, "Get off me, get off me, get off me!" And she, they sort of finally stop, and my and my and my her character mum says. You know, I just, you know, I just wish I could lose a bit more weight or whatever. And my character goes, well, it, it's okay because at least you've got big boobs. And he grabs one of her boobs. And, and his character doesn't know why he did that. It's like when it happens, he's like, I, I don't even know why. I just wanted to make her feel good. I thought something like, you know, it's all justified in the book. But she slaps him. She slaps him and goes, don't ever do that. Don't ever, ever touch a woman like that. Don't ever talk about a woman like that. All that sort of thing. And he gets really upset because he doesn't know why he's done it and what happened. But that, that we had, a, you know, discussions between the publishers and I about that for the teen edition because the initial thought that was that that was not appropriate for kids. But then I thought, actually, that's, that is appropriate for kids. My personal opinion is that kids are the exact people who should be reading that sort of thing. That people, like, that, yeah, the, the, you, you know, you need to learn these sort of things. And so... Yeah, there, there was, it was constantly finding that line of what's appropriate and what's not. And, you know, there's just... School curriculums and libraries have lines that they can't cross, you know. Um, and that's, that's just that's a part of it. So you just have to... Some of, the, some of the rules, even though you disagree with them... Can, like when I was 12, when I, was, I remember being 11 and reading Stephen King's It... And think it was the best movie, best book I'd ever read, read in my life. And they have sex in that book. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's crazy. But, and, and like, there's death and everything. But, like, I, I just thought it was amazing. So, I'm, you know, when you're 11 and 12, you kind of, you can read anything. So, I, I kept that in my head when I, um, when I was writing this. And also now, God. I mean, kids. Phew. They got access to everything now. They're not going to put down my book because someone grabs his, you know, a boob. Anyways, that's just my opinion. What do I know? I'm just an award-winning artist. Um, no, <laughs> so, um, completely unnecessary. Hey, uh, what? What? Any more? I think we're yeah, almost we got one time. more question here. Oh, yeah. So um, I, I did read a lot of books when I was in primary school. When my mum was still alive, I read a lot of books. Um, I stopped reading a lot of books after she died. I think I just got into a different headspace and started, you know, yeah, focusing on sport and going to parties and trying to be cool. Um, so I did read a lot of books and I was obsessed with Stephen King growing up. So I remember there was that big jump. I'd read a couple of, you know, not Goosebumps, but sort of style books when I was kind of in that year four, so eight to nine, ten sort of age group. And then, yeah, 11, I remember my, my mum bought me The Green Mile, volume one, because it was broke up into six parts. So it was like achievable and it was small. And so it was like, oh, I could actually achieve this. And, and then I just, I just read every single part in, you know, a week and, um, and I just couldn't stop and just loved Stephen King and read, tried to read every single book that he had. 
And so, um, yeah, that was what I became obsessed with. And now I, don't, I embarrassingly don't read that many books at all. Um, I And I don't really consume that much. I may, like, there's, you know, there's there's producers and there's consumers. And I don't really, I, I prefer to produce than consume because I, I tend to not enjoy the consumption as much because I'm over, over th- I always overthink it. Like when I watch a movie now, I'm like, Oh, that's an interesting. I wonder why they did ADR there. Okay, I wonder who the DOP is. Why would they choose that lighting? You know, like it's like I'm not enjoying it. So I try not, and I try, and I get, I absorb too much influence from them. So I try to avoid consuming too many other people's stuffs. Yep. <laughs> Avoiding other people's stuffs. Some more great <laughs> language like that is in this book here. Yeah, you, you, it wasn't difficult to talk like a 12 year old in my book. Thank you. <laughs> Um, yeah, any other questions before I go? Yep. What's next? What is next? So this has the word soon to be a major motion picture on the top of it. Um, I am currently um, working on the script for that right now, uh, thanks to Screen Australia and the producers at Aquarius Films and Wooden Horse TV. So Aquarius made the movie Lion, and um, they also made The Other Guy, which uh, which is my show. So working on that have another TV show that was, that has been, um, I don't know if I can announce it, but uh, I can't announce it, but it's happening um, on a network. And, <laughs> and um, yeah, so th- those, are, those are the main focuses right now, the film and the TV show. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff and I'm super excited about it all. I've also got a kids music group called Diver City if anyone wants to uh, check out our albums. ARIA Award nominated, lost out to Bluey, God damn it. I blame myself. I was listening to Bluey as a hype-up music on, as I was getting ready for the Arias. And then they beat us. I was like, of course they did. I like it more than our music. <laughs> Matt, you're a super busy man and we're just going to be seeing more and more of you, which is fantastic because um, – it, and it's wonderful that you were able to be here with us today oh, and so share stoked. these stories. So thank, thank you very you much. So thank much. you for coming. Thank I really you appreciate so it. I hope you all enjoyed it. I'll see you next time. Bye. Oh, I'm going to be over there. Yep, Matt will be signing books over at the table there, so please uh, come and say hello.